Running a business is hard and you have to have the mental fortitude to overcome the challenges. A lot of entrepreneurs have trouble because they feel they are the best at their business and they want to do it all. A key skill you have to learn is how to develop others and multiply yourself. You have to be willing to let people occasionally fail in order to help them and your business succeed. Where you spend your money is another key success factor. Short-term investments for long-term gain is a hallmark of successful small businesses. If you are a young business owner, save first. The bigger you grow the gap between what you earn and what you spend, the bigger legacy you can leave in your life. Robert Gonzalez has had the unique opportunity to learn about running a successful business from multiple angles. As a branch manager with Cutco Vector, Robert went from low performer his first summer to national champion his second summer. After a successful run as a district manager, he pursued an opportunity working in the startup TrueMaker, where he gained a wide range of additional insights. He has also had a chance to see into the financial results of hundreds of Vector managers through his work with Rising Stock. Now, Robert is the co-founder and COO of MyBooks.Pro, where he teaches real estate professionals how to be more effective and more profitable in their businesses. If you want to gain a greater understanding of what it takes to succeed as a business owner, you'll get just that from the practical insights of Robert Gonzalez. Welcome to Changing Lives, Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world using lessons and skills that they first learned from selling Cutco knives with Vector Marketing Corporation. This podcast was created to share inspiring stories from Cutco's most prominent alumni and current leaders. On this show, you'll meet successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. All our guests will have two things in common. One, they're all changing lives today through their work and their influence. And two, they all started out selling Cutco knives when they were younger. The lessons of the Cutco Vector experience are numerous, are compelling, and are real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I always love it when I have a chance to have a guest whose Cutco journey started in a training class with me. And that's exactly what we have today with Mr. Robert Gonzalez. Uh, Robert started selling Cutco in 2005 in the San Jose office. I actually got a chance to run his training class and helped lead and guide him throughout his early years in the company. He ran a branch two times. Second time was the national champion in Cutco Vector, Silver Cup winner as a branch manager, became a district manager. He graduated from UC Davis. He worked as a district manager for a while with us and then ventured off to other things. He spent some time with TrueMaker, working with Mark Lovis. And now he is the co-founder and COO of MyBooks.Pro, which is a profitability consulting service for small businesses. Robert Gonzalez, welcome to the podcast. Dan, it is exciting to be here. Thank you for having me on. Yes. Well, we've talked about uh, getting together for this for a while, and I've definitely been looking forward to this opportunity. So thank you so much for, for making the time. Yeah, take us, my pleasure. Take us back to 2005 and tell us how you heard about Cutco and how you got started. Oh, great question to start off because I like rehashing this. So I have been working in some capacity since I was maybe 12 or 13 years old. I know that I worked for a catering company when I was like 14, like my friend's parents owned one and I was like a server when they did events. I know that I worked at Abercrombie and Fitch before I came and found Vector, but uh, it was the summer in between my freshman and sophomore year of college. 
And I was just looking online for jobs and I came across this one. Uh, I remember calling and I remember the receptionist putting me on hold and then the call disconnecting. And I thought, wow, they're getting a lot of calls. I, I need to call this back. Right. <laughs> Which now from knowing how that process is after running an office, that's not an ideal situation to lose the call. So anyways, I called back and I got an interview and I remember coming in and seeing a lot of professionally dressed people thinking, all right, I, I got to nail this. And uh, I was accepted for training. And sure enough, I show up to day one and your face was standing in front of me, maybe <laughs> a little bit of a younger face, but it was, uh, it was a cool training and seeing all the trophies, knowing that, you know, I was getting trained by a pretty legitimate guy. At least it looked like that, or you purchased a lot of secondhand trophies, one or the other. But um, <laughs> yeah, that, that was a really, really cool training. And I know that I did, I don't think I had the, the fastest start in vector. I think I sold like 25 grand my first summer which back then I, I guess was pretty good. It was pretty decent, but I, there, were, there were people that started at the same time that sold more. But yeah, it was, it was awesome. It was fun. And uh, it was a good summer because I was in between freshman and sophomore year at school. So coming back home to my parents and telling them I always was have to be out of the house, that was a good thing too. Yeah. Well, hey, I'm glad you called back after getting disconnected, Robert, because uh, that would have been an uh, epic loss if we never had you on the team. What are some of the memories and lessons from that first summer? Yeah, I, I think the biggest one is there were a lot of guys from Bellarmine in that team. Yes. Um, Hero Rodriguez was that summer. Yes. Which you, I think you've had on the podcast. Yes. Um, this guy named Blaze. Blaze Silverman. Silver. Yep. Yeah. He was there. And there were probably a couple other... Um, it was Beta, Beta Yang that oh, yeah. summer? Yep. Beta was that summer too. Like yeah. I said, I think I did okay, but I definitely didn't sell as much as some of those guys did their first summer. So it was cool. I remember that competition a lot. And then I also remember making a bet with this guy in my training class and I never saw him again. So he still owes me money. And with inflation, <laughs> he owes me a lot of money. Inflation, interest. If I ever track down that $100, I'm going to collect like 500 <laughs> Nice. We'll never bet with people who aren't going to pay, Robert. That's one thing yeah. that I've learned. Uh, so nice. And then I remember the next year you were an assistant manager. And my recollection is that we sort of had a pretty thin staff the following summer. And it was 2006. And Ron Geronimo was the division office manager. We had Zach Taffany, mm -hmm. who was like his right-hand guy. Zach like, did almost all of the interviews Ron did all the like working with the reps. And then you were the singular assistant manager that helped Zach and Ron and me with whatever was necessary and just did everything that second summer to help our team become successful. That was a crazy summer. And it's crazier that you have that recollection considering how many summers you've been through. Yeah. Because again, knowing that I've run an office, all the stuff that I learned, it's not ideal to have one assistant manager. Not an ideal thing at all. And I think I just remember doing whatever Ron or Zach or you needed from yeah. vacuuming the office the day before training to going and getting food for lunch because people were forgetting to eat to taking PDI calls when I had no idea what I was doing. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, you sold enough to be able to talk to reps, new sure. reps. And so uh, we knew you could do well. And it was a great summer. We really thrived. That summer, I remember we did over $800,000 that summer. So it was pretty exciting. Yeah. 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 So, so you got into running a branch, right? The, the following summer, you ran a branch. I recall a lot about this. I recall you having some really massive goals. I know your branch was in Santa Cruz and that you really, really struggled. Like it didn't come together for you for whatever reason. I think it surprised all of us, but uh, it was a difficult and challenging experience for you running that first branch. Uh, what do you remember from that summer? Yeah. I mean, you kind of danced around the word of suck. I think it sucked and it was weird. Yeah. I, I didn't expect for it to suck either, but I think every business always has some kind of challenging period. And if you want to call like my professional career starting then, that was the suck period. And I, the biggest thing I remember, because people asked me all the time, what was different between your first office and your second office? 
And at first I didn't really know what to tell them, but I think I figured it out along the years. And that first summer, it actually had nothing to do with skill set. Like I could run an interview, I could run training, I could talk to reps. But I think what a lot of people miss is when you have to put it all together and do it all yourself and be the first one there in the morning, the last one there to leave. And you just have to have the instinct to know what to be doing at all times. It's tough. And that's probably the hardest part about running a business is putting it all together, not just being great at teaching people to do you know, what their job should be, but also running any kind of administrative stuff or training another type of person or placing advertising. There's just a lot of things that if isolated, I could do really well at that point in time in my life. But when you put them all together, I think it was just the struggle and it almost felt, I don't want to say overwhelming, but it kind of did kind of felt overwhelming. And I learned a lot. I do remember that it was very challenging though. Yeah. So as you went through that experience or as you got to the end of that experience, how did you feel, you know, looking toward the future? Uncertain is a good word. Uncertain is a good word. I think there were certain days where I woke up and thought I have to be resilient and I'm going to be. And then there were other days that I woke up and thought, I don't know if I can do this. Mm -hmm. And I definitely remember that it altered back and forth. There was never like a consistent couple weeks right after that where I thought, yeah, I'm going to go for it. It took a little bit of, you know, here's the crazy thing. And I don't know if you remember this phone call, but I worked at Motel 6 after my branch summer because it was the instinct that I thought, I don't know if I can depend on myself to create revenue anymore. And Mm -hmm. so I got a part-time job, hourly job while going to school still, but you know, there was like one appointment a week where I would start, where I would sell Cutco. And it just, you know, kind of stay connected. And it just kept bringing me back to the point where I would make the same amount in one hour that I was making the whole week working at Motel 6, getting paid who, who knows what, 10 bucks an hour or something that I just started to gain that belief and momentum back again. And I think that's the easiest way to describe it. Is it just, it it took a little bit of repair time or healing time maybe. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that you said that you were uncertain and didn't know if you could depend on yourself to be able to create revenue, right? Like that I feel like is, is where I think most people start out in Vector not really understanding, you know, how they could truly be responsible for creating a result. And like, that's what we learn here by getting appointments and then going out and selling. And then obviously at a higher level by running a branch office or a district office. And you went through that period of time where you doubted whether you could, you could do that. But then clearly you've proven since then that you could do that, right? You had the skills, you learned how to put it all together, and then you were able to elevate. And, and I think that that's a really instructive story for a lot of young people to hear because there are so many things in life that we do that just seems so hard when we first do it that we don't know if we can do it. And then all of a sudden, it's easy, right? We learn how to do it. It becomes so easy. And it isn't that hard to grasp or to get good at. So I just think that hearing that you who became the Silver Cup branch manager the second time, not just a good one, but the best one in the company the second time, that you went through that with your first branch experience to me is a, a really, really uh, eye-opening point for a lot of people to hear. Yeah. It's funny that you brought up training because every entrepreneur really goes through the same cycle from what I can see from my own personal experience, which is throughout our training, whether that's you know professional skill set training, we create this belief, or at least we try to create this belief that we can do it. But no matter how strong that belief is, we don't really know until it happens, right? Until we get that first sale or until right. the first thing that we think is supposed to happen happens. And then when it finally does, that belief just sprouts like a new limb. And I think that I just, I sprouted the new limb before I saw the results show. And maybe it just started to create this belief when challenges happened because challenges happen all the time, right? You don't go out, you know, right away and knock it out of the park every single day challenges happen. And maybe that was part of it too, is that we just sometimes underestimate the challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a part of it for sure, Robert. And and I also think that 
setting the right level of goals is an important part of being able to have the proper confidence level that you could do something. I recall you having some extraordinarily high goals for your branch. I mean, you were talking about breaking the all-time record. You were talking about like, could you do a million dollars as a branch? Right. And obviously somebody's going to break the records. The records do get broken from time to time. Sure. But the reality is that seldom does a first year branch manager go out and do the type of performance that you did. You know, like we just saw Kyle Lopes last year do 600,000 and like, you know, he's a unicorn. He is Um, a unicorn. And so I think that what I try to do is I try to make sure that people understand how their goals will break down. So if somebody sets a goal to do, you know, X dollars, I try to help them understand how that will break down in terms of recruiting, in terms of the week by week flow, so that they can develop a clear picture of the steps, the small steps that are going to get them to their goal. And then if they start knocking out those small steps one day at a time, one week at a time in the early part of the summer, then the big goal can come together and often does. But, you know, having a clear picture of how the goal will be achieved is important. And I don't remember the work we did in breaking down your goals, but I just do remember that you had goals that I thought were excessively high and difficult. Yeah, they were. And that's probably another lesson that I learned. I've always been a stubborn person, but I was probably the most stubborn in my early 20s. When someone told me that I couldn't do something, I was of the thought that I'm going to do it because you said I can't. Mm-hmm. Right. And it didn't matter who was telling me that. And that's probably a good lesson that I learned, which is, you know, there are people who have had so much experience in matters that I have zero experience that can provide a lot of insight and being better at listening was probably one of the biggest things I pulled away from that without even knowing it. Yeah. I do feel like one of the things that is greatest about the vector opportunity is that it exposes people's areas of opportunity, their needs, what they need to learn. Uh, It exposes everybody that comes through the doors because we all have times where we'll set a goal and not achieve it. And then we have to look within and say, well, what is it about me that I can improve in order to be able to hit this type of a goal and becoming more humble, developing better listening, learning how to evolve and adapt more quickly, being less, less likely to hold on to old ways of thinking. These are all traits and qualities that I feel help people evolve both in Vector and in any business and in life. And it seems like you went through a period of having to learn some of those lessons the hard way through that, that uh, challenging branch. Now, I recall that you basically became entrenched in Davis to live up in the Sacramento area mm-hmm. after this. And so you had a little bit of a change of scenery, uh, started working with a new manager. Maybe that was the key. Got out of got out of my organization. Yeah. So started working with Jesse Levine, and you know you spent a year working with the Sacramento office. Then you branched again, and in 2009, when you branched the second time, you were number one in the company. What made the difference in winning the Silver Cup? Wow. I mean, we guess we could just say it was change of scenery. It was the territory, Dan. It wasn't the manager. <laughs> it's always the territory. Yeah. Right. No. I think the biggest thing was mental fortitude. I was ready for challenges. I think that was the biggest thing. Like I I felt how many challenges occurred the first time. And I just went in with new armor and said, Hey, whatever challenges are coming, we're going to deal with them. Mm -hmm. And that's probably the little hidden gem of silver cup winners is that they probably had more challenges than anyone else. And no one ever, admits to that or no one thinks that they just say, Oh, that person just did really good and they got lucky. And you know what? There's probably an element of truth to that where there's always a little bit of luck because you can isolate events and say, sure, that was a little luck in that. But there was also way more opportunity for failure because you're putting yourself out there more than anyone else. And you're dealing with more things because when you're multiplying your organization and spreading it wide and you know building it tall you're exposing yourself and so we had tons of challenges there was just like so many different things that never get talked about 
in terms of the challenges for people that succeed at a high level. And I bet you, if you talk to any Silver Cup winner, they'll, they can reflect on some challenges that happen in those years. And I'm sure you've won plenty yourself. You can probably reflect on plenty of challenges that happened in those really triumphant times. And maybe that's what made it even more worth it, was that yeah. you're ready to embrace the challenges, take them on, and and they weren't going to prevent you from hitting it. Whereas challenges like to deter people. But I, it was almost as if, you know, we were not going to be deterred from Yeah. Me. So was it fair to say that the first time around when a challenge came up, you had a hard time seeing around it? Whereas the second time when the challenges came up, you had a little bit better perspective and realized how you could overcome it, how you could get past it and still be able to produce at a high level. Yeah, that's, I think that's easy to say. Yeah. What were some of the systems you had in place in your office that helped you thrive at a high level? Systems I had in place in my office. We recruited 200 people and I vividly remember that 70 of them were PRs. Now for the new managers listening to this, you may think like, oh, 70, we do that in our sleep. Well, no one did that back then. Like there were no branches that went out and launched 70 PRs. Right. And so I knew that was a big focus. And our PR program, like we just not, it was nonstop reach outs. We did not stop reaching out to personal recruits. And we, you know, that was back in the time where you worked with your friends because it was really fun because there was, it created an office culture. So I can vividly recall the PR program. I can vividly recall that the top 25 in our office was the most important thing talked about at every team meeting. It wasn't the silver cup. We would talk about it, right? But we said, hey, what's most important is you getting in the top 25. And we would project like, hey, in order to get to the top 25, you've got to be at 4K for the summer. Because Drew Frank, one thing I remember Drew Frank saying, and he creates all these weird metrics, but he had said back in that time, he said, if you have your number 25 rep in the office at X amount, add two zeros, and that's what your office will do for the summer. And it is eerie that my number 25 rep that summer was Anthony Anderson, and he was at 39.97, and we did 396K. (laughs) Wow. Eerie, eerie. But we talked about the top 25 nonstop. It was all about being in the top 25. And so we had a, you know, a 2K productivity, which back then was pretty, pretty solid. You know, having reps sell 2000 bucks on average. So we had a lot of first promotions. I know we really emphasized that getting that first promotion. And yeah, it, it, it was a great team culture. I can remember that I didn't really intend on the team culture being like the thing that I remember, but everybody knew everybody. And people were field training left and right. And people showed up to team meetings. I, I can remember that was always like pulling teeth like getting everyone to team meetings. But we had, I remember having a team meeting with 80 people there and we just couldn't be in the office. And for a branch, like that was a cool feeling. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. That is amazing. Yeah, that's exciting. So the, the mental fortitude to be able to overcome the challenges, nonstop PR reach out was key, promotion of your top 25, a little bit of luck. I think every good summer involves a little bit of like some good circumstances coming your way. But those are some things that made the difference in going from, you know, whatever you did in Santa Cruz, 40,000, I want to say it was 42,000, something like that. And if you want to count my personal sales, it was 40,000. Yeah. Up yeah. to 396,000 to be the number one branch in the company. And so you became a DM at that point and continued in that role for a few years, had a nice run some pretty good success overall. What were some of the highlights of your DM experience? I hope that every DM, if they got this question, says the same thing. And that's multiplying yourself. Mm-hmm. Because with a branch, all you're thinking about is we're going to sprint and we are going to sell as much as we can in these four months and see what happens. But being a DM is about developing people. And that's what creates the business. Like you're going to sell because you wouldn't be a district manager if you didn't know how to create CPO. But it's that the new skill you must learn is how do you multiply yourself and how do you develop people? And I remember you and PJ Potter was my first summer as a DM. How many assistant managers do you have? 
how many branch managers do you have? It wasn't how much are you going to sell anymore? And that's what starts to change your perspective. And it's the most rewarding part of the job. It's never the trophies anymore. It's not the trips. The most rewarding thing is seeing people go out and do what you do. And knowing that I still have people from my development line that are in the business as district managers or you know CSPs or CGCs, that's a pretty cool feeling. Yeah. Well, as you ran your district office and you became successful, what do you feel like were some lessons that you learned that are directly connected to what you teach people today and advise people today on like running a good business? Hmm. Yeah, you, you can't work 100 hours a week forever. Because mm-hmm. as a branch manager, that is what I did. I would go to sleep as soon as I left the office and I'd wake up and I'd come to the office. When you're a district manager, you're leading through your people. And a lot of entrepreneurs have trouble because they feel they are the best at their business, which is probably true. In fact, I hope it's true. And this can be translated to any entrepreneur. And the example I always use is a plumber, right? You got into the plumbing business because you're a great plumber. And there's probably nobody in your organization that could ever be as good of a plumber as you. But that doesn't mean you're the only one working on people's pipes. So you need to learn how to multiply. And the, the first time you do it is so hard. It's so hard watching someone not be as good as you. It's, it's very difficult. And so the biggest lesson that you learn there is you have to let people fail in order to see them thrive. Mm. That's a really great insight, Robert. And it, it applies to so much more than just business. I mean, you're a new parent now. I know your, your uh, baby daughter is about a month old mm-hmm. as we're recording this. And there's a lot of similarities that that you have to give them a chance to have their own experiences and to sometimes experience failing at something because that's where they really, really understand the process better when they've experienced that other side of, you know, not just always getting things right, but sometimes getting things wrong. And as a business owner, watching someone do that is painful because sometimes they're costing you money Mm -hmm. when they do that. But the end result is that they're better able to do the tasks necessary to make your business productive and successful, you know, in the long run, which ends up making you money because you have, you know, you've multiplied yourself, as you've said. Yeah. If you want to use the dollar and cents analogy, short-term financial loss, if it yields long-term financial gain is always the right decision. And district managers, I hope you take that to heart because watching your assistant managers run a horrible interview or run a horrible phone jam or make a bad phone call, if you can coach them correctly and you can love on the person and be tough on the result, then they're going to get better in the long term and they're going to make you plenty of money, but they're also going to create a memory for you that you're going to have for a long time. Yeah. So that's a great one. The idea of developing and delegating what are the other commonalities between a great vector office and a successful business outside of vector? Where you spend your money is a really common one. I th- used to think about how much money I spent on advertising. And in the moment, it feels so tough. But if you never advertised, you would never generate ever- any revenue. And the lesson learned was, is the marketing money I'm spending, is it coming back to me? And is it coming back to me twofold, threefold? A lot of business owners have a hard time spending money at first because they're bootstrapping things, especially if they start with no funding, no backing. They're just trying to get their thing going and they say, oh, I'm going to rely on word of mouth. You can do that, but it's tough. It's really tough. There's very few businesses that say, hey, I don't spend a dime on marketing, never have, never will. Right. Or, you know, hey, I, I never go meet with my clients and spend money on my clients. I never spend money on my people. That was another thing, you know, spending money on my people. That's a common marketing thing. People don't, don't know how much you care until you show them. And sometimes that's just spending a little bit of money. Sometimes it's spending time. But small term or short, small investments for long-term gain is something that's common throughout all businesses. I learned that right away, right? But you, I typically, or I know that I learned it as a vector manager. The first time someone I really thought was amazing quit. That's where you learn a lot about doing a self-check of your organization, a self-check of yourself. Why did this person leave? You just want to ask them why. You don't want them to go like, hey, just tell me so I can get better and they're already gone. That's tough, especially one that, you know, out of the gate, they're amazing 
and you just have big things planned for them. Like you stay up late at night thinking about how great they're going to be. And then two days later, they say, hey, I can't do it anymore. That's just a lesson that you get to learn about how your organization is run and how you treat your people. And Yeah. You referenced a key rep quitting. And I want to point out that you very quickly turned that around into what could I have done better versus you know, just blaming the rep that, you know, they were lame and they left or something like that. And I, I think that just by itself is a great point for people to consider right now. Whenever you have any experience where you have a small failure, so you're working with somebody and it doesn't work out, they leave, you're attempting to influence your child and it doesn't work. They start screaming and, you know, running off and disobeying worse or whatever, any experience where there's any sort of lack of success, right? We could call it lack of success instead of calling it a small failure. Either way you look at it, I think it's important to look at, hey, was what could I have done better? Like that's an empowering way of looking at it versus always just blaming the circumstances and the other person, even though many times it is the other person's you know, difficulty or challenge or whatever. And sometimes maybe there was nothing you could do. What you just described is a constructive way of looking at any challenge or difficulty that we experience in business or in life to say, how was I complicit here? What might I have been able to have done better to avoid ever being in this situation? What could I be looking at next time to make sure I do more proactively to, you know, head off things like this from happening again? That's all stuff I think is really instructive. Yeah. Expectation versus reality is where that comes in, right? If, if someone is committed to doing something and then they back away, typically it just meant that the reality didn't meet the expectation that they had. And I'll take full ownership of that first, even though it probably is some kind of partial ownership, but I prefer to take full ownership so I can try to get better. So that same thing doesn't happen again, whether that's in recruiting or a client experience, because we lose clients, right? As business owners, we lose clients too. Why did that happen? How can I be better? Yeah. I just think any way that we try to take more personal responsibility for situations like that without being too hard on ourselves, any way that we take personal responsibility is helpful and can move us forward with more success in the future. Sure. Yeah. So, hey, tell us where the path took you after Vector. Yeah. So I got to work at a startup. And if you ever get that opportunity, it doesn't matter what the pay is, unless the pay is nothing. I recommend that you take that opportunity because working at a startup, for every year you are there, it's like five in real business years, because everything is moving at a completely different speed, especially a startup in San Francisco. So not only did I work at a startup, I worked at a startup in San Francisco. And on top of that, I was commuting from Sacramento to San Francisco to get there. So I had a two-hour commute there, a two-hour commute back every single day. Wow. I didn't even mind that because of how much experience I got working at a startup. The thing that you were doing one day can be completely different for no apparent reason the next day. And you just are forced to adapt or go away. And so you'll see a lot of turnover in startups. I wasn't one of those people. I stuck it out for over two years because it was almost addicting that I would just go in to work and think, what is going to be different today? And I, I was labeled as like a district manager. I was like the equivalent of a district manager when I started there. And then I took over a region and then I started training people nationally. And I was just flying around to cities. And then one day it was like, Hey, we want you to come back to headquarters and we want you to build sales programs. And again, I was just, I just became ready for it. But something that I noticed was startups, financials make no sense at all. (laughs) Like, especially in the Bay area, because Facebook I at least blame Facebook, started this trend of no matter how much money you're not making, we're going to place an evaluation on you that we think is correct. And that's never how it used to be. And just dollars and cents to me, it just never made sense. And that's what kind of led me to what I do right now, which is help businesses make money. The easy thing about it is we help businesses make money just by telling them where their money is going and how much is coming in. And 
working at that startup, I knew that the money that was going out was way more than the money that was coming in. And yet it still sold for tens of millions of dollars when it cut sold. So ideally, I don't like to have the the clients that I have lose more money than they're making because they're usually in a different type of space. They're not labeled as that startup. It's like an independent business owner or a sales professional. But yeah, working at a startup, I highly recommend that. If anyone has the opportunity, go do it because it yeah. is you're going to learn so much. Yeah, it's cool. So, And you got to do this with Mark Lovis. This was a true maker. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had Mark on the podcast, of course, as you know. And then is he not? Is he not the most unique individual you've ever met? <laughs> well, everybody's unique in different ways, so I'd have to think about all the ways that Mark is unique. But he certainly uh, would be on that list, Robert. I've never had a boring conversation with Mark Lovis, and I don't <laughs> think I ever will. And you'll never know what kind of conversation it's going to be. He could talk to you about wine, food business, philosophy for the longest time, and you will stay engaged and get so much out of it. Sorry, I had to say that. <laughs> Mark Mark is an amazing human. So yeah, it was cool to get a chance to work with him. Yeah, nice shout out. So this led you to what you're doing now. Tell us about uh, mybooks.pro. Yeah. So there is a guy that you've had on the podcast, and I believe his episode is really highly liked, and that's Adam Stock. So I started working with Adam in 2017, helping him with Rising Stock. I was a profitability coach. I still help out a little bit with Rising Stock. But what Rising Stock does, as you know, is it works with vector reps and managers and is essentially their CFO. It keeps track of all the money that comes in, all the expenses going out. And then we have small coaching calls with them, with managers on like how to be better at making profit in their office, how to save more money, making sure they're paying taxes, all these things that independent business owners, not just vector managers and reps, have a lot of trouble doing. So Adam and I thought, well, we should start a company for a different set of business professionals, which is sales professionals, so mostly sales managers who are incorporated, and real estate agents and real estate investors, because these are spaces where what we do and what we know is so needed. It's needed like oxygen. There's so many real estate agents that come to us and say, I need your help because I either haven't filed taxes in a couple of years, or I have no idea how much money I'm making, or I don't know what my expenses are like, or I'm spending too much money and they just don't know. So we created My Books Pro in 2018. So we're in our third year right now and it's awesome. It's been really fun. It's been really great to see the impact that Adam and myself can have on a different community, the way that Rising Stock has with with Vector and Cutco. Yeah. So the focus is on primarily real estate professionals and helping them to understand the uh, the financial side of their businesses a whole lot better so they can make smarter decisions where to invest, where not to spend, etc. Sure. Absolutely. I think a lot of entrepreneurs, especially real estate agents, when they start making six figures, they just, it's, it gets out of control, right? And they just start spending, not even really knowing it because they just get hungry to create more business and live a bigger lifestyle. And we just have mm-hmm. to help them out as best we can by just showing them the data about how much they're spending and how much they're earning. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you must get a chance to see a lot of interesting data working with the real, real estate professionals and also through rising stock. I would love for you to share just any advice you would have for young business owners in terms of uh, smart financial management and what would be some habits they could establish. Oh, love this. And I'll give you a funny story. I'm not going to name any names, but I had a client that started with us in this last year and she is one of the most successful real estate agents in the country. Her 1099 was in the mid six figures last year, and she accumulated $300,000 in debt. And I thought, the first thing I thought to myself was, how is this possible that your spending habits are so much that despite earning half a million dollars, you went into debt? And she just didn't know. She just didn't know how to answer the question. And so from that, the best advice I can tell anyone is that when you start making good money, and that's like anything above 50 grand in the United States, start saving as soon as you get paid. 
save something, especially if you're a 1099 independent contractor where no taxes are taken out of your paycheck, please save money first because you never know when the rainy day comes. You never know when the IRS comes knocking. Saving money is so crucial. And you've preached that to me since I was 19. I may not have listened to the advice until I was like 23, 24, 25, but I at least heard it, but it just went in one ear out the other. So I'll say it again, because you've probably heard this before, but if you are a young business owner or even an experienced business owner, save first, that's number one. The second piece of business advice that's savvy financially is the bigger you grow the gap, the gap is the difference from the amount you earn from the amount you spend, the bigger legacy you can leave in your life. And we talk about the four levels of financial freedom. And the fourth one is significance, which means you're you're creating ripples with the amount of money that you have. You're not just buying things that are disposable at the end of the day, right? And maybe that's contributing. Maybe that's saving for your kids' funds, which just made me remember that, you know, three days ago, we got our firstborn's social security card in the mail. And the first thing we did was we opened up a 529 because that's something that she's not going to see until she's 18. But when she does see it, it's going to be really big and it's going to be really exciting. And that's something that's significant. That's something that's financially significant. Another thing that's financially significant is contributing to charities that are very impactful to the communities that they impact. I know that you contribute to the Front Row Foundation. I've contributed to the Front Row Foundation. I currently sit on the board of a nonprofit called Campaign One at a Time, which is like the grassroots scale Make-A-Wish, where they pick one kid every month that has a terminally ill disease, right? Or a terminal disease, like like cancer is the most common, childhood cancer, and they fulfill a $10,000 dream for the kid. Now, People will say like, oh yeah, I donate my time and time is great, but you know what makes an impact for the smaller charities is money because money enables them to do the things that their purpose says they're going to do. So those are two big things that we talk about with financial significance is, you know, what is your giving strategy and how is your legacy left when you're gone? Mm, Good stuff. So that all stems out of saving Uh, as soon as you start earning, save first. Right. What other bits of advice would you have for young business owners? Try your best not to continue to live paycheck to paycheck. Because there's a time in our life where we all do that, right? We we make what we spend and then we make more. So we feel like we can spend more. And that pattern can follow us for a really long time. And it's very unfortunate. Just think that at one point in time in your life, you lived off of 10 grand a year. So the only thing stopping you from still being able to do that is you made choices. You made financial choices that matched your income, but they don't always have to keep matching your income. You you can put a stop to how much is enough. And this is a conversation I have with friends all the time where, you know, we're doing well and it's great. And, you know, one, one person always says, well, I want to make more. And I'll always first ask, like, how much is too much? Like, do, do you really need to? And are you sacrificing time with your family? Are you sacrificing you know, other activities that you enjoy doing to make more money to keep chasing it? Or is it that you need to make more because you're still spending at an outrageous pace? So try your best to like really discipline yourself to decide how much is enough. Like how much do I really need to live off of? And you know, when you meet with a financial planner and they ask you like, how much do you need to live? You're gonna have to answer that question because that's how they build your retirement structure is how much money gets dispersed per year based on how much you need to live. So try to keep that in control. And that's that's advice that we give clients all the time because you just because you're making more money it doesn't mean you have to keep spending more. Yeah. Yeah, you know, one of the ways that that happens is by establishing a automatic or quote forced savings mm-hmm. so that a part of what you're earning is automatically being deducted and invested. And if that's socked away into stuff that's not super liquid, like retirement accounts, that's probably good because that's one way of forcing yourself to stay within a certain level of spending. The other thing I I try to teach young people is to sort of gradually raise the threshold of what you feel like you should have in your checking account. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Like for most people, what they should have in their checking account would be an amount that equals whatever bills are currently on the desk. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that might be a hundred bucks if they don't have any bills right now. It might be a thousand or two thousand. Right. But if that's what you have in your checking account, you should be uber careful about what you're spending. And yeah. And really, really like living a low lifestyle to get yourself out of that because that is a, it's like you're standing on the edge of a cliff if you're in that position all the time. Get to where you have 10,000, 20,000, you know, and more that's just there for you that you know you have and raise the threshold of what you should have before you feel like you can treat yourself to a luxury, right? Maybe now you feel like, hey, if I get to 10,000 saved up, I can treat myself to a thousand dollar luxury. And that's nice, but eventually raise that threshold higher and higher in your life. And that's how you get out of that paycheck to paycheck mode is, uh, you know, have a forced savings that's non-liquid and then raise the threshold of what you feel like you should have that is liquid to be in a reasonable position um, and keep building that so that your as your income increases, your expenses increase at a much slower rate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have a lot of uh, sayings, but one of them is the first step to financial freedom is always having 10K in emergency fund and funding your Roth IRA every year. Mm-hmm. And until you've done those two and you do them consistently, like why, why are you going out and spending $1,000 on an iPhone every single time the new one comes out? Right. Right. There's just things that you can do where it's like delayed gratification, but it's like it compounds. Like the effect is, is felt so much bigger later if you can just delay a little bit of gratification. Yep, exactly. I think what it ultimately comes down to is, you know, the things that are most important to you, you'll do first. And so until people get serious about their finances, it's probably the last thing they think about. When they get paid, they're thinking about what am I going to spend it on instead of, you know, what's important to me is 20 years from now, I feel financially secure. And it's tough when you're 20, 21, 22 years old to start thinking like that, but it just separates you from the pack. And ultimately, all the high achievers, that's their goal, right? Is to separate themselves from the pack. And so if you can do that, not just with your sales and your achievements, but you can also do it with your financial portfolio. It's a pretty cool thing too. Yep, exactly. Well, Robert, as you look into the future, what are you most excited about? The immediate future, I mean, my daughter has gained two pounds since she was born. And that freaks me out. Like if I I gained 25% of my total body weight in four weeks, it'd be a little freaky. I'm, (laughs) I'm I'm really excited about her. That's probably the thing I'm most excited about. I'm excited to see my personal and professional growth. I'm excited to stay connected with all the people that I value. That includes you. And uh, yeah, I'm just excited. I think excitement on all levels of the future is great. I'm excited in particular in California for things to start opening back up so I can feel a little sense of normalcy again when I'm not working. Yep, indeed. Well, we're heading that direction, seems like. And uh, being a father for the first time is uh, is awesome. Uh, I remember somebody telling me, welcome to the least exclusive but coolest club in the world. And uh, that's what you're a part of now. So that's awesome. And it's good to see your business growing. And it's good to see the impact you're having on a lot of young professionals, both in Vector through what you still do with Rising Stock uh, and elsewhere as well now through uh, mybooks.pro. So thanks very much, Robert, for your time on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Dan. All right. That was Robert Gonzalez. Hope you liked that. Uh, I liked talking with Robert about his challenging experience as a branch manager the first time. Because, you know, I was right here with him right through that. And it was literally was as much of a surprise for me to have seen him struggle and and really fail that summer as it was for him and for anybody is we sort of viewed him as being very talented and having good experience, you know, grew up in our office, sold a lot, was an assistant manager for a full summer. And yet, as he mentioned there, it's hard to put it all together. It's not that hard to develop all the skills, but to put it all together and to execute all the different pieces of running a business at the same time isn't always easy for people. And the greater level of preparation that you can put in on the front end, the more likely you are to have success. Robert had to learn to be better at listening to overcome that challenge, right? He had to find that sense of humility that we described here during our conversation. 
and be able to hear ideas and adapt his thinking to new ways of operating. Because a lot of people have a tendency just to do more of what they just did the next time, just do more of it. And that's not a recipe for success. Robert learned a lot of new things that helped him to do much, 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 much better the second time where he won the Branch Silver Cup. Love what he said about learning to multiply yourself. That's the, the greatest thing about running a business. It's the key for all small business owners to be able to have success so that you're not doing everything. Because you can't do everything. There's a limitation of what one human being can do. None of us want to work 100 hours a week, at least not for, for long. Maybe in small bursts when we're young and starting something new might be okay, but not something we want to do for the long haul. And developing others is the key to that learning where to spend your money to make sure that it's being invested in things that are creating a return, learning to save as soon as you get paid, establishing saving habit, savings habits as early in life as you possibly can so that you maintain the correct standard of living that's going to help you to advance your finances toward the long-term future. And that when you do that, you can have enough financial wherewithal to have a greater contribution to society and more significance left behind in the world after you are not here. A lot of good stuff right there from Robert Gonzalez. Hope you guys got some great insights from that conversation. Have a fantastic rest of your day, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you got value from today's episode, please share it with others and consider rating or reviewing us on your podcast player. Subscribing to the podcast is free and ensures that future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. For access to guest bios, show notes, and other resources, visit changinglivespodcast.com. You can sign up there to receive valuable resources for free from people featured on the podcast. And to support our podcast sponsors, visit changinglivespodcast.com slash deals. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. We'll be back in a few days for our next story about changing lives. 